This program is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. Download their free mobile app and use the promo code BEST during activation for a chance to win $100. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Onion Radio News, an op-ed article by Bill McKibben, NPR, The Young Turks, The Daily Show, Media Matters, The David Packman Show, MarkFiore.com, The Tom Hartman Program, Comedian Lee Camp, and journalist Johan Hari with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users by the ridiculous Michelle Bachman. Wind power is gaining popularity as a clean, renewable energy source. But is it dangerous? This week, the American coal lobby released a new advertisement warning wind turbines could blow the Earth out of its orbit. Let's watch. The Earth's orbit. All life depends on it. A little closer to the sun will burn up. A little farther away will freeze. But wind farmers want to install thousands of propellers onto the Earth. And propellers make things move. We like this planet. Let's not blow it away. Chilling stuff. So, uh, panel, is it time to reconsider wind energy? I think we have to. I'll admit, I always assumed that wind energy was harmless, but after seeing this ad, I am not so sure. Some leading scientists at Cole University recently took me out to dinner and told me about a study they had just published. It demonstrates how the sheer force of the new wind we're creating could accelerate the Earth's rotation so much, people will literally fly right off of it. Oh, like when you spin a lazy Susan too fast and the pepper shaker slides right off. Now, the environmental activist group Americans for Mining-Based Energy recently released a documentary entitled Terminal Gust in theaters soon. Could movies like this spur the public to take a more critical look at the windows? Well, I just happened to see a screening of that film at the recent Center for Coal Policy Conference in Uh the Bahamas. There is a heart-rending segment about a small town which is suffering from wind whistling into their water supply. Oh my God, kids could drink that water and get wind in their brains. These big wind fat cats have our country in a stranglehold. I'm tired of America sucking on the wind feet. The fact is, mankind is meddling with forces that cannot comprehend here. Unlike coal, we don't know what wind is. No. We don't even know where it comes wind from. Wind slips through your fingers. It's dishonest. It's like that slogan from last year, coal, energy you can clutch. Now, yes. the coal yes. lobby has recently raised uh, concerns about other energy industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, just earlier this week, they took out this full-page ad in the New York Times about how solar energy is sucking our sun The dry. American people have to stand up and start buying only environmentally sound coal-based products. Yeah. Absolutely. Matter of fact, I, so. I happen to have this delicious snack bar here. It's 100% natural coal. Mmm. Mmm. It's yummy. Mmm. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's really good. It is vitally important not to make connections. When you see the shots of rubble from Joplin, Missouri, you should not wonder, is this somehow related to the tornado outbreak three weeks before it in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or the enormous outbreak a couple weeks before that, which together comprised the most active April for tornadoes in U.S. history? No, that doesn't mean anything. It is far better to think of these as isolated, unpredictable, discrete events. 
it is not advisable to try to connect them in your mind with, say, the fires burning across Texas. Fires that have burned more of America at this point this year than any wildfires have in previous years. Texas and adjoining parts of Oklahoma and New Mexico are drier than they've ever been. The drought is worse than that of the Dust Bowl, but do not wonder if they're somehow connected. If you did wonder, you see, you would also have to wonder about whether this year's record snowfalls and rainfalls across the Midwest, resulting in record flooding along the Mississippi, could somehow be related. And then you might find your thoughts wandering to, oh, global warming, and to the fact that climatologists have been predicting for years that as we flood the atmosphere with carbon, we will also start both drying and flooding the planet, since warm air holds more water vapor than cold air. It's far smarter to repeat to yourself the comforting mantra that no single weather event can ever be directly tied to climate change. There have been tornadoes before, and floods. That's the important thing. Just be careful to make sure you don't let yourself wonder why all of these record-breaking events are happening in such proximity. That is, why there have been unprecedented mega-floods in Australia, New Zealand, and Pakistan in the past year. Why it's just now that the Arctic has melted for the first time in thousands of years. No, better to focus on the immediate causalities. Watch the videotape from the store cameras as the shelves are blown over. Look at the news anchor man standing in his waders in the rising river as the water approaches his chest. Because if you asked yourself what it meant that the Amazon has just come through its second hundred year drought in the past five years, or that the pine forests across the western part of this continent have been obliterated by a beetle in the past decade, well, you might have to ask yourself other questions, such as, should President Obama really have just opened a huge swath of Wyoming to new coal mining? Should Secretary of State Hillary Clinton sign a permit this year allowing a huge new pipeline to carry oil from the tar sands of Alberta? You might also have to ask yourself, do we have a bigger problem than $4 a gallon gasoline? Better to join with the U.S. House of Representatives, which voted 240 to 184 this spring to defeat a resolution simply saying that climate change is occurring is caused largely by human activities and poses significant risks for public health and welfare. Propose your own physics, or ignore physics altogether. Just don't start asking yourself whether there might be some relation among last year's failed grain harvest from the Russian heat wave, and Queensland's failed harvest from its record flood, and France's and Germany's current drought-related crop failures, and the death of the winter wheat crop in Texas, and the inability of Midwestern farmers to get corn planted in their sodden fields. Surely the record food prices are just freak outliers, not signs of anything systemic. It's very important to stay calm. If you got upset about any of this, you might forget how important it is not to disrupt the record profits of our fossil fuel companies. If worst ever did come to worst, it's reassuring to remember what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce told the Environmental Protection Agency in a recent filing. That there's no need to worry because, quote, populations can acclimatize to warmer climates via a range of behavioral, physiological, and technological adaptations, unquote. I'm sure that's what the residents of Joplin are telling themselves today.
States along the Atlantic coast are racing to be the first in the country to put wind turbines offshore. But a group in Ohio says the country's first offshore wind farm most likely won't be in the Atlantic, but in the freshwaters of Lake Erie, about seven miles off the Cleveland coast. Jeff St. Clair of member station WKSU has that story. A dull gray salvage boat chugs out of the port of Cleveland on a calm spring morning. It's part of the early stages of what some hope will become a major industry in Ohio. But today, the prospects of dozens of massive wind turbines sprouting from the lake floor seems remote as we head for the only structure there now, an orange dot on the horizon. The dot grows to a 100-foot-wide structure, jutting 30 feet out of the water, as the boat pulls up to the century-old ironclad water intake crib. The helmeted diver tethered to the boat by a coil of hoses sinks into the murky water. His job is to recover an ice sensor sitting 50 feet down on the lake bottom. Meanwhile, three engineers climb the metal steps to the crib's roof, where storm-battered instruments are gathering wind data. Engineer Aaron Godwin says the numbers demonstrate the lake's energy potential. This would be actually this would be a good example of a day where we'd be generating some pretty decent power. If you look up the tower, you'll see that the instruments are spinning faster as you go up in elevation. Again, one of the reasons you come out here is it's unobstructed, so you got clean wind. Promoters of clean wind say in the next decade, hundreds of turbines in Lake Erie could produce 1,000 megawatts of power, enough for 200,000 homes. The plan is to start next year with a five-turbine pilot project within sight of downtown Cleveland at a cost of $100 million raised from investors and loans. Chris Wisman is the project's developer. He says with turbine supplier GE, engineering giant Bechtel, and Texas-based Cavallo Energy on board, his company will likely win the nation's offshore wind race. The Great Lakes will really be home to large-scale development of offshore wind long before we see it in the Atlantic. But first, engineers need to solve a problem that most ocean wind farms don't have, massive flows of shifting ice each winter. Data from the ice sensor recovered from the lake bottom will help engineers like Dave Matheson design foundations that can withstand those icy pressures. So what we're trying to do is get to a point of certainty so that we can design them appropriate for being in Lake Erie. That is, without over-engineering them. With so many unknowns to overcome, each turbine will cost more than $20 million, so much money that it could take decades to recoup the investment. But developer Wisman insists the high cost of the pilot project will be outweighed by the long-term benefits. What we're talking about here now is a project that maybe produces high-priced power, and the trade-off to get that is to get jobs. But not everyone believes it is worth it. Cleveland industrialist Dan Moore has stakes in a dozen businesses, including one that builds turbine blades. But he says the numbers Wisman is throwing around just don't add up. The concept of building windmills in Lake Erie is nonsense. $100 million for 3.4 megawatts. It doesn't come close to making sense. It's Alice in Wonderland. Moore thinks high-priced wind energy will not work in a region that needs electricity to power heavy industry. I mean, just the math, you're, you're decimal points off. I mean, it's not, you're not even close. Some other Great Lakes players are backing away from offshore wind turbine development because of environmental concerns. In Michigan, lawmakers and residents are concerned about disturbing the lake's natural beauty. Meanwhile, in Canada, all of Ontario's offshore power projects have been put on hold. But backers in Ohio say they've looked at the realities, and they're still optimistic. Lori Wagner is head of the nonprofit Lake Erie Energy Development Company. 
He understands the challenges. We know that we have to get it down to approximately half of what it is today, and that's an immense challenge. I mean, we, we don't have any illusions about how difficult this is going to be. The world's first freshwater wind farm went online last year in Lake Vanern, Sweden. Engineers in Cleveland are hoping to benefit from lessons learned there. And they say the project's engineering problems are actually the easiest to solve. It's the political and economic challenges that are likely to remain the thorniest. For NPR News, I'm Jeff St. Clair. Everybody knows that Al Gore is the godfather of global warming climate change movement, uh, and he has been working for decades to reverse that climate change and to make sure that we do not have devastating consequences for the planet. Uh, of course, he fought against George W. Bush. He's uh, obviously a Democrat, ran for president against George W. Bush as a Democrat. Uh, obviously, he wants to support a Democratic president. Well, President Obama won when he did. Of course, uh, Al Gore was very happy about that and thought, all right, great, we're now going to address climate change. Well, he's now written a piece in the Rolling Stone magazine saying, yeah, it didn't work out that way. And this is pretty heavy language against President Obama. Here we go. He goes on the warpath. Quote, President Obama has never presented to the American people the magnitude of the climate crisis. He has not defended the science against the ongoing withering and dishonest attacks, nor has he provided a presidential venue for the scientific community to bring the reality of the science before the public. Now let me tell you why uh, I love that comment. Because it isn't just about climate change. There in that first comment, Al Gore encapsulates the problem for the president entirely. He never makes his own case. He just defers to the Republican case and says, well, I'm not going to go quite as far as the Republicans. So instead of making the case for climate change, when did you ever hear him do that? Did you ever see a big speech from President Obama saying, all right, here's what climate change is a disaster. It's happening. It's imperative that we need to fix it. Here's scientists. Here is the case to be made, et cetera, et cetera. Did you see that speech? I might have missed it. I didn't see it, right? Did you then see action, follow-up action on that? Al Gore, again, in that article in Rolling Stone says, hey, you know what? You proposed legislation, and when the Republicans fought it, you crumbled. You didn't back it up. And he's right. He didn't. And what do we get? Did we get climate change legislation? Nope, we got bupkis. The guy doesn't make his case, if it really is his case. case. Instead, what do we have? We had the president saying, we're going to do more on nuclear energy. And he was saying that right around the time that the nuclear reactors were melting down in Japan. He has also the worst timing. And what did he say? He said, we're going to do more offshore drilling because the Republicans want to. He said, but I'm not going to quite do as much offshore drilling as the Republicans want. Wow. And then what happened three weeks later? Gulf oil disaster, right? Oops, now Obama owns uh, offshore oil drilling. Make your case. Al Gore is right about it in climate change. He's right about it in regards to almost all other issues. Now, the criticism gets even more withering. He says in the second part, quote, During the final years of the Bush-Cheney administration, 
the rest of the world was waiting for a new president who would aggressively tackle the climate crisis. And when it became clear there would be no real change from the Bush era, the agenda at Copenhagen changed from how do we complete this historic breakthrough to how can we paper over this embarrassing disappointment. Whoa. That's some harsh language, man. And he just said it right there. There was no real change from the Bush era. And the only objective was to try to hang a mission accomplished banner so you can take that embarrassing disappointment and then turn it into, hey, we did something, we got together. And, and what did they have in Copenhagen? They had a weak agreement to a non-binding resolution. So it doesn't bind you on anything. It doesn't bind us. It doesn't bind anybody else. In other words, bupkis. Nothing got done. And it is embarrassing. And, but I know, President Obama tells us, if he gets a second term, oh boy, then he's going to be a lion. I mean, he was a lamb the whole first three years. But watch out. Look, as we get closer to the election, believe me, President Obama is going to sound a lot more progressive. Because the country is progressive. He knows that's how, to get, how you get votes, right? And he'll say, oh, climate change, we need to do this, we need to do that. If you Give me one more vote, and then I'll get around to it. Look, i got to be honest with you, I love that Al Gore called him out. He's like, you didn't get the job done, you didn't even really try, you never even made your own case, and in the end we had an embarrassing disappointment. Strong words, but they are warranted. Just a few honest words is all I need. There's never been a better time to check out Stitcher for your mobile device. When you activate their free app using the promo code BEST, you'll get instant access to thousands of podcasts streamed directly to you without syncing. You'll be entered automatically to win $100, and you'll help support Best of the Left at no cost to you. No reason not to check it out, so head to your preferred app market and download the free Stitcher app just named the best app ever for your iPhone, Android, BlackBerry, or Pre, and be sure to use the promo code BEST during activation. Our insatiable thirst for oil has forced us to do business with some of the world's most dangerous regimes. It turns out the most dangerous may be closer than we think. Why Tanak has more. We've been told time and time again we must get off foreign oil. America's dependence on oil is one of the most serious threats that our nation has faced. This dependence leaves us more vulnerable to hostile regimes and to terrorists. But if we're going to get serious, we must examine the players, particularly the biggest, most dangerous player of all. Right now, our leading supplier of imported oil is Canada. That's right. It's Canada. It gives us about 2 million barrels of oil a day, which is about twice as much as we're currently getting from Saudi Arabia. Canada. I knew it. For too long, we've cozied up to their dictators, opened our borders to their most heinous operatives, and ignored their institutional brutality again and again. And oh, that's gotta hurt. Yes, bit by bit, Canada is killing us. I flew to the oil fields of Alberta to confront our Canadian oil overlords. Would you prefer that I call you Sheikh or Warlord or your Lordship? Uh, I'm, just, I'm Senior Vice President, but I mean, you can just call me Drew. Would you agree that Canada is a blood and oil soaked rapetocracy? Oh, no. 
Canada's a very welcoming, warm country. There's, there's no reason we can't continue to be great neighbors. Such arrogance. And worse, it's American companies that are keeping these oil barons in business. Someone had to send them a message. First question. Um, wow, these are a mess. Right, evil Canada. We've been doing business with Canada for many years. We may have small differences, but we're really cut from the same cloth. So you're okay with Canada? Canada's just fine. Well, what would you do if your daughter had her health care paid for by the government? As a father, how could you live with yourself? I could, I could live with that. And you call yourself an American. You disgust me, sir. Also, do you have some Kleenex? Because I am starting to congeal a little bit here. Sure, the propaganda sounds great, until you talk to those who've managed to escape the evil maple regime. So you're Canadian refugees? Uh, yeah, we're originally from Toronto. Yeah, born and raised Toronto. Go Leafs. What was it like living in that repressive regime? Ooh, what's, oh. uh, what's this show all about? Yeah, what is it about? It's, it's The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Oh. That's that show where they make you look silly Making on. Making you look stupid, right? Yeah, we're just a bunch of Canadian hosers oh, to no, you. No, no, hey, no, 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 thank no, you for take us. off, eh? Go home, Yankee, yeah. eh? Go Leafs, go! I felt that same anger on the Canadian street, where America has become the scapegoat for all of Canada's problems. Why are you angry at America? A lot of reasons. Number one, Vancouver Canucks. We want the Nordique back. You took the Winnipeg Jets. That was a little bit too much. Go Leafs go. You a hockey fan? No, I'm American. Just as terrorists are taught around the world, here a new generation of Canucko fascists are being trained to hate. Clearly, it's just a matter of time before they strike. I think they're more afraid of us than we are of them, to be honest. So you're saying we should invade Canada before Canada invades us. I Got don't it. think... That's all I need, right there, yes. As Americans, we simply have no other choice. Americans have a choice, a personal choice. Every individual has a choice to use fossil fuels or not. Done, all right, easy. We'll stop using your oil. Let me give you an example of what that might mean, though. Obvious transportation means would have to change. Your cell phone, uh, video games, MP3 players, your iPad, all these things are made from a petrochemical or petroleum-based products. What about internet oil. porn? That would be gone. I was beginning to see petropolitics in a whole new light. Maybe Canada wasn't so bad after all.
Back on the show here, you know that there's a flooding situation happening in Nebraska that's threatening a nuclear plant with having to shut down. And this is barely being reported in the mainstream media, Lewis, and no surprise. And I'll, I'll tell you exactly why it's no surprise in a second. This is on the Missouri River, which rose to just 18 inches of shutting, uh, of forcing a shutdown here with this plant, which sits at 903 feet. There's levees around it. And the river has to hit 902 feet in Brownville. Uh, or at Brownville, rather, for the plant to have to be shut down. Now, it went as high as 900 and some change, so it got very, very close, Lewis. And you know that what's incredible here is that I believe there is a concerted effort, this is the Cooper nuclear power plant, to prevent reporting on this. And how are they doing this? They've actually shut down the airspace above the immediate area surrounding the power plant. And as you know, Lewis, if you can't fly over it and get pictures and video you're probably not going to cover it on mainstream television news. So it's a brilliant strategy, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. And this is now in the midst of the Fukushima disaster, in the midst of all of the renewed discussions about nuclear power, alternative energy, nuclear energy. This is a concerted effort. This is the epitome, Lewis, of trying to control, of corporations successfully, not even trying, control, successfully controlling the news. And uh Oh, go ahead. No, no, go, go ahead. Oh, and, and the FAA, which agreed to shut down the airspace above, is basically complicit in that task. Uh, there's also something to be said for wanting to prevent panic, but that's not the only problem here. The, the other problem is that, well, why is this even occurring? Why is this a problem? Why is the flood a problem? I mean, don't you plan for every eventuality? I know there are levees and they didn't hold the water, but can't you predict that that might happen at some point? We can always ask that question. I hesitate to always ask the questions of couldn't you just see this coming because it was asked in, in Japan and the argument was made, well, you could have relocated the plant elsewhere so that the water wouldn't be as much of an issue, but maybe they couldn't. Well, we know, we know that in Japan they had the option of for more money building the plant on a hill that, was, that it was near Right, and they didn't. To save money. Fair enough. That, that was a factor. But in other words, any time that you start saying, couldn't it have been predicted and therefore shouldn't you have done something differently, there, we could argue, well, wait a second. Why is anybody even living in Florida? I mean, when we figured out that Florida gets hurricanes and that they cause disaster, why are people even living there, period, right? We can always ask that question. I don't, I, 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 my concern is more that this strikes me again as another example where subsidized industries, it, it, we have oil and we have power in general or, or highly subsidized industries in this country are involved in the prevention of getting bad news of bad news leaking out and this time the airspace has been shut down and as we know no video means no news so this is a this is really a big story if what happened in in Japan was a big story and it was the potential, and I get that the population in the immediate surrounding area is not what it was in Japan, but the potential for a similar type of disaster, given that we're talking about water flooding a plant, is there. People deserve to know about it. And this time, it's not an earthquake that just happened in an instant that triggered it. Here we're talking about a flood that was rising, is rising, over a period of time. But we're getting almost no reporting on it whatsoever, period. Reminds me of... Uh... BP a little bit. I mean, I wonder what's going on in and around the area of the plant. You know why? I was just reading about this. I was actually talking to people. I was talking to Tom Hartman about this at Netroots Nation specifically. BP now is loving the fact 
that you can no longer fly over a lot of that affected area in the Gulf. And it instantly just got out of the news. Once there's no more video and a couple, we've had seen a couple of pictures suggesting there's still huge oil slicks there. As soon as you can't really get video and pictures, it's basically like it's not happening, even though right. we know it's a, still a huge issue down in the Gulf. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. Conservative media figures are pushing a study on sunspots in a desperate attempt to dismiss scientific consensus on global warming. Guess what? The Earth is facing a mini ice age within 10 years due to a rare drop in sunspot activity. And yet Al Gore has just endorsed Mitt Romney. Well, endorsed him, but he's praised Mitt Romney for his stance on man-made global warming. And now all of a sudden we have reports suggesting it's not going to be global warming. Now we're going back to global cooling again. When we contacted one of the researchers of the study for clarification, solar physicist Frank Hill replied, quote, we are not predicting a mini ice age. We are predicting the behavior of the solar cycle. In my opinion, it is a huge leap from that to an abrupt global cooling. The recession has forced many small manufacturers to make new products in order to survive. That's been particularly true throughout the industrial Midwest. Michigan Radio's Lindsay Smith has the story of a Michigan yacht maker that's now taking risks in new industries to keep its factory open. Tierra Yachts was operating at full capacity in 2005 and 2006, turning out about 400 yachts per year, with prices ranging around a million dollars each. To keep up with demand, the company nearly doubled its manufacturing space in the town of Holland, Michigan. But Tierra Yacht Steve Bush says the timing could not have been worse. As the whole economy started to suffer, both in Michigan and in the nation and in the world, uh, the Tierra Yachts economy started to suffer as well. The market was hit hard, and Tierra Yachts had to lay off roughly half its workforce. But now the largest structure inside the newly expanded warehouse is a mold for a 150-foot-long wind turbine blade. The blade mold belongs to Energetics Composites, a new spinoff of Tierra Yachts. Steve Bush says the new company is now making parts for wind turbines. Specifically, wind blades and nacelle structures and spinner caps are all made from advanced composites, from fiberglass, from laminates, from carbon fibers. Engineers who work with this material are always looking to make it both stronger and lighter. Bush says that's what TR Yachts has been doing, too. We want a strong bolt hull, we want a strong deck assembly, and we want to decrease the weight of those for marine efficiency. So marine engineering and aerospace engineering in that application are very, very similar. But the wind energy industry in the U.S. isn't growing nearly as fast as TR Yachts had hoped. Per Grossgaard has been involved in wind energy for more than three decades. Speaking from Denmark, he says there's a huge market for large-scale wind farms in the U.S., but that market is hard to crack. All the years I've been in this industry, we have seen the market in the U.S. as a boom and bust market. It is a very, very bad situation for everybody who are committed to the wind industry. 
The federal government provides wind energy developers with far fewer tax subsidies than traditional producers like oil and gas. Grosgar notes that the wind industry is still relatively new in the U.S. And because there's no national policy, investors have to work through regulations in 36 states, each with their own renewable energy standards. Crossguard says the hardest part of getting into the wind power industry is figuring out how to fit into its super complicated supply chain. But of course, everybody who has the the willingness to make themselves attractive to the industry, they should try it. Of course, they should. Energetics Composites has a contract to sell its blades and parts to a wind turbine manufacturer. Now, some of the company's workers are adapting from making complicated boats to complicated wind turbine parts. We need to bake it. We like to get it as warm as we can, and it will cure over that resin. Nancy Jones has been making boats at Tierra Yachts for 32 years. There are a lot of same techniques, but there are a lot of things that are done different, and it is, you know, it's a learning curve. I want to work. And I'll work wherever I'm needed. On the yacht side of the business, the market is stabilizing a bit. But on the wind side of the business, the outlook is better. Energetics will have enough work next year to go from about 40 employees to 300. For NPR News, I'm Lindsay Smith. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Hey, David Pakman here, host of the David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com. Check out our show. Continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of the David Pakman Show. All at davidpakman.com. Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head? In response to the un-American attempt to put an end to billions of dollars in oil industry subsidies, and with 75% of the U.S. populace supporting this abomination, the American Petroleum Institute would like to make America more American. Now sing along, you traitorous f***. Oh, say can you see by the oil man's delight what so proudly we hailed at the first quarter meeting? Just three months and so much. Pay us more, it's our right. We need taxpayer bucks. Said the valiantly scheming and the summer driving, with gas prices rising, gave proof through the night of our profits unsurprising. Oh, say do those payments our subsidies do save? Or the land of the fleeced, and the home of the gained. <laughs> That's what I call American.
Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Robert Kennedy Jr. on the line with us. He is an attorney, a veteran environmental activist, a writer and author of several books, including Crimes Against Nature, and now has a new movie out, TheLastMountainMovie.com is the website for it. And uh, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. It's great to Good have to you here. with us. Uh, tell us, yeah, the, the movie doesn't open here in D.C. for another week, so I'm going to have to wait to see it. But I have seen the the website and the 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 rushes, and it looks this looks like a really substantial movie. What brought you to make this movie? Well, I've been involved in mountaintop removal mining, fighting mountaintop removal mining for um, almost since the beginning of my career as an environmental attorney for 27 years. The reason, Tom, is all the reasons you talk about it. it. It's a it's a template for what's happening in the rest of America, and it is a it's a model, it's a paradigm of what happens when corporations take over government and the communities, the people, the landscapes, um, everything becomes commoditized. In West Virginia, over the past ten years, a handful of companies, about four, but mainly Massey Energy, have blown up, detonated uh, every week, 2,500 tons of dynamite a day, of ammonia nitrate explosives a day. It's the equivalent of a Hiroshima bomb once a week. They have flattened an area of the Appalachians that are the size of Delaware. They've blown up the 500 biggest mountains in West Virginia. They have buried 2,500 miles of rivers and streams. Now, if you buried a 100 feet of a Hudson River tributary, we would put you in jail. If you blew up a single mountain in the Berkshires or the Catskills or the White Mountains or the Green Mountains up where you are, we'd put you in jail. You couldn't do this in California or Utah or Colorado. But they, these companies get away with it by subverting democracy and by hiding what they're doing from the public and the press. And if you go to West Virginia... Every level of democracy has been subverted. If you're an individual landowner, you have no right to stop people from raining boulders and toxic dust onto your property, from poisoning your wells, from poisoning your children. You, uh, you have no right to participate in local zoning ordinances that would zone out mountaintop removal or planning boards or, or, um, or building inspections. The agency that is supposed to protect the West Virginia public from environmental injury, the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection, is a, is a, is a captured agency. It's a sock puppet for the industry that it's supposed to regulate. And the entire, virtually the entire judiciary of West Virginia and every relevant politician, this is what this movie shows, mm-hmm. That every relevant politician in the state, Republican and Democrat, has been corrupted by this industry. Two-thirds of the people in West Virginia, by every poll, want to see mountaintop removal mining ended immediately, yet not a single politician in the state will say that publicly. Amazing. Now, was was it a clip from your movie that I saw, or was it just something in passing where where Jay Rockefeller, the one of the senators from West Virginia, was asked about mountaintop removal, and he and he said basically, "Please, let's just not talk about that topic. Let's not go there." <laughs> well, he, you know, he's one of the Democrats who right. along and it, and he's a good actually, guy on his most first issues. Election, you know, twenty years ago, he ran against mountaintop removal, and he was beaten by the coal industry. And then the next election, he said he was a friend of coal, and that's where he's been ever since. And it's an embarrassment for him. 
because he's a man otherwise who prides himself on integrity. Right. But he's got to take a dive on this. Let me tell you something, Tom, that, that is of interest to your viewers or to your listening audience. Both, actually. There's a march right in now. West Virginia. Yes. What? Both right now. We're, we're on both radio and television right now, okay. live. There's a march in West Virginia that I'm participating in, and it's on March 6th. You know, there, there, there's a civil disobedience going on in West Virginia now that's bigger than the Selma March. There's already 2,500 people who've been arrested, and nobody's heard of it because the press down there has been so subverted that nothing gets out of West Virginia. Hmm. It's really extraordinary. But there's a march on Blair Mountain, and you may, uh, it begins June 6th, and then the, 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 um, the action itself is on June 10th, and 11th, my movie will be screened in Charleston June 10th, and everybody's going to camp out at the bottom of the mountain, including about 15 Kennedy kids. And then, and it's sponsored by the United Mine Workers and by the by Sierra Club, by NRDC. But this history will interest you. In 1921, as now, West Virginia was essentially a company town. Right. The shops, the homes were owned by, and the mines, of course, were owned by the mining industry, and the Local sheriffs played an important enforcement role for that industry. If a miner got injured, their family had to be evicted from the home so a new one could be brought in. The, the sheriffs were given that job, and, and if union troublemakers came into the mines, they had to be locked up, beaten, killed, or escorted out of the county, and the sheriffs were employed by the mining industry to do that. There was one sheriff who resisted. His name was Sid Hatfield. He was a member of the famous Hatfield-McCoy family, hmm. and he refused to be purchased by the mining industry. And, in fact, he would put mine operators in jail for mistreating their workers. Oh. He was invited to a parlay by the industry and by two um, captive sheriffs in the adjacent county. He knew he was going to be murdered. He was, be he was begged by the... Um, by the mine workers not to go, but he went anyway. He had a hard-headedness that is very characteristic of West Virginians. He went anyway, and on the courthouse steps, he was stripped of his weapons and then executed by the mine industry in broad day daylight. Wow. This triggered one of the biggest labor riots in American history. 10,000 miners marched on Blair Mountain to confront the industry. They were met there with pillboxes, that were uh, staffed by Pinkertons with Gatling guns who gunned them down with machine guns. And Warren Harding, who was then President of the United States, was also in the pocket of the mining industry. He ordered the United States Air Force to drop bombs on them and, in fact, to drop poison gas on them. Wow. Did. So That's a violation the, of posse comitatus. This was the only time in American history that the United States Air Force has deliberately bombed American citizens. And... It, although the union finally backed down, although the miners finally backed down, it was the beginning of the organization of the United Mine Workers, and it was the milestone, the, the kind of the Bethlehem of the union movement in this country. Right. And um, Massey Cole, so this is like Blair Mountain is the Gettysburg of the American middle class, of democracy, of all the things we value, and all the things that you see under attack today in Michigan and Iowa, and all of the states that you've been talking about over the past several months. Massey Cole, a few months ago, announced, partially out of spite for the unions and partially just for the profits, that it was going to blow up 
Blair Mountain. It's one of the last standing mountains in West Virginia. And this is, as I said, it's the... It's the and it's an icon. It's the icon. It's the Gettysburg of the Union Movement. So in, for the first time, the United Mine Workers are getting together with the environmental community and staging a massive march and civil disobedience um, that begins June 6th. You can find out more about it, and I hope you'll join us um, by going to the the our movie website, which is the, the last movie or the last mountain dot com, right? Correct. Yeah, at movie dot com, and and the movie, of course, is called The Last Mountain. And is it about Blair Mountain? Is that the? No, it's about Coal River Mountain, which is one of the last standing mountains. Blair and Coal River are one of the last standing mountains in southern West Virginia. And it's about a group of people up in the hollows who have decided not to let Massey destroy Blair Mountain. So I, wonder, Mountain. I, 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 can, I can hardly wait till it gets here to Washington, D.C., where I'm living now. Robert Kennedy Jr., TheLastMountainMovie.com. Keep up the great work, sir. Thank you, Tom. Honored to have you with us. country needs the coal that comes out of the mountains but they could at least repair what they've torn down instead they strip for coal and leave the land all bare and ragged till there's not a sign of life that can be found I'm looking for a place where it's clean and hardly dirty a place where I can breathe some clean, fresh air And I love the mountains of my home But they've been mistreated badly And I wish that more people would care Apparently increasing temperatures from global warming is causing polar bears to move south where they're mating with grizzly bears creating, wait for it, Growler bears. On top of that, we're seeing tornadoes, the likes of which we've never seen before. See, we thought Mother Nature was going to fight back subtly. You know, a few degrees here, a few degrees there, making it a little difficult to go ice skating in New York City in November. But instead, Mother Nature is going all fucking out. She's using F5s to hurl growler bears through our bedroom windows, nuclear radioactive tsunamis taking out whole regions. Maybe, just maybe, we should to rethink whether we really want to go ahead first at the environment because apparently Gaia doesn't fuck around. There are no preseason games in this match and it turns out Mother Nature makes the goddamn rules. If I were coaching Team Mankind, Growler Bears never would have even occurred to me as a possibility. It's like showing up to a tennis match and your opponent is using a Wolverine strapped with napalm. You gotta hand it to nature. She's fucking creative. She's like the Dyson vacuum guy. Spent his whole life on vacuums when no one even knew they needed fixing. For 25 years, his family heard noises from the basement like, ah, oh, fuck my eye, my eye.
night and they had to try and eat dinner with that going on. But then one day, Dad emerges from his mystery cave with a fucking centrifugal force vacuum and everyone calls him a genius. Well, that's Mother Nature right now emerging from her basement with F5 growler bears, volcanoes in Iceland, and a mystery virus killing off all the honeybees. And we're all sitting here scratching our asses going, didn't even know that was allowed in the rule book. So what's Obama doing to help with this shit? Apparently not much. This week Al Gore is coming out with an article in Rolling Stone saying Obama hasn't accomplished hardly anything on global warming. Listen, I get it. No one on the right or the left wants to admit Al Gore is correct because he seems so fucking sure of himself and he's got a huge head. No, like, not his ego. He literally has a huge cranium. Like, he's a walking caricature. But we'd rather to run around going, who's he to tell me to change my light bulbs? He can't even win a presidential campaign. Well, okay, he won one presidential campaign, but the Supreme Court told him to go fuck himself anyway, and it was probably because they didn't want to change their light bulbs. Point being, I'd rather tell Al Gore he's right now and get to work on the problem rather than waiting until I'm trying to explain our willful ignorance to a godforsaken growler bear who just ate the CO2 emissions bar graph I had set up. You can't deny that they live so fine. Yeah, I want to be a polar bear, that's me. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. I'd love hanging out with my polar bear friends. Yeah, I think that is something I would do. Sometimes you get to hinge points in human history. Moments when we have to choose between an exuberant descent into lunacy and a still, sober voice offering us the same way out. Usually, we can only see these hinge points when we look back from a distance. In 1793, the great Democrat Thomas Paine said the French Revolution shouldn't betray its principles by killing the former king because it would trigger an orgy of bloodletting that would eventually drown them all. They threw him in jail. In 1919, the great economist John Maynard Keynes said that the European powers shouldn't humiliate Germany because it would catalyse extreme nationalism and produce another world war. They ignored him. In 1953, a handful of the American president Dwight Eisenhower's advisers urged him not to destroy Iranian democracy by kidnapping its prime minister because it would have a reactionary ripple effect that lasted decades. They refused to listen. Another of these seemingly small moments with a long echo is, I think, happening now. A marginalised voice is offering us a quiet warning and an inspiring way to save ourselves. Yet this positive alternative seems to be passing unheard in the night. It's coming from the people of Ecuador, led by their elected president, Rafael Correa, and it would begin to deal with two converging crises. 
In the four billion years since life began on Earth, there have been five times when there was a sudden mass extinction of life forms. The last time was 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs were killed, probably by a meteor. But now, the world scientists agree, the sixth mass extinction is at hand. Humans have accelerated the rate of species extinction by a factor of at least 100, and the great Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson is warning it could reach a factor of 10,000 within the next 20 years. We're doing this largely by stripping species of their habitat. We're destroying the planet's biodiversity, and so we are making the natural chains that keep us all alive much more vulnerable to collapse. This time, we are the meteor. At the same time, we're dramatically warming the atmosphere. Yeah, I know it's become terribly passé to listen to virtually all the world's scientists on this issue, but I remember the collapsing glaciers I saw when I reported from the Arctic, the drying out I saw in Darfur, and the rising saltwater I saw in Bangladesh. 2010 was the joint hottest year ever recorded, according to NASA. The best scientific prediction is that we're now on course for a three-feet rise in global sea levels this century. That means goodbye London, goodbye Cairo, goodbye Bangkok, goodbye Venice, goodbye Shanghai. Doubt it if you want, but the US National Academy of Sciences, which is the most distinguished scientific body in the world, just found that 97% of scientific experts agree with the evidence for man-made global warming. The tiny 3% who disagreed had average expertise in their field far below their colleagues. So where does Ecuador come in? At the tip of this South American country, there lies 4,000 lush square miles of rainforest where the Amazon Basin, the Andes Mountains and the equator come together. It's the most biodiverse place on Earth. When scientists studied a single hectare of it, they found it had more different species of tree than the whole of North America put together. It holds the world records for different species of amphibians, reptiles and bats. And more, impo more importantly still, this rainforest is a crucial part of the planet's lungs, inhaling huge amounts of heat-trapping gases and keeping them out of the atmosphere. But almost all the pressure from the outside world today is to saw it down. Why? Because underneath that rainforest... There's almost a billion barrels of untapped oil containing 400 million tonnes of planet cooking gases. We crave it. We howl for it. We'll do anything for it. Unlike biodiversity in a safe climate, it's tradable for cash. Here's a textbook example of what's driving both the sixth great extinction and global warming. We have been putting short-term profits for a few ahead of the long-term needs of our species. And we know this is causing a disaster. But the oil companies push on in search of profit and they pull the rest of us in their trail. Except this time, for the first time, the people of Ecuador are offering us an alternative, a way to break this pattern. Alberto Acosta the former energy minister who drew up the plan, calls it a punto de ruptura, a turning point, one that questions the logic of extractive development that drilled us into this species-swallowing hole. Here's the offer. The oil beneath the rainforest is worth about $7 billion. Everyone knows that a stable climate, biodiversity and functioning lungs are worth much more than that. But until now, no one's been willing to pay. Ecuador's democratic government says that over the next 10 years, if the rest of the world offers just half of what the oil is worth, 
$3.5 billion, uh, $3.5 billion they will keep the rainforest standing and alive and working for all of us. This will almost certainly, just to give you some sense of perspective, be less than the current Libya war will cost us. In a country where 38% live in poverty and 13% are on the brink of starvation, this is an incredibly generous offer and one that's popular in the rainforest itself. As one of its residents, Julia Kada, who's 45, told New Internationalist magazine, with oil, the government just sells it to richer countries and we're left with nothing, no birds or animals or trees. No country with oil has ever done anything like this before. Not a single one has ever considered leaving it in the ground because the consequences of digging it up are too disastrous. This is a startling attempt to reverse one of the great dysfunctions in the current global economic system. The market considers things like species diversity, the climate and the rainforest to be externalities, factors that are not affected by the price and profit mechanisms, so irrelevant and dispensable. It's a system that, as Oscar Wilde puts it, knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. The people of Ecuador are trying to find a way to get us to see the value of some of the most important things on earth. They first made this offer in 2006. So, how has the world responded? Chile offered $100,000. Spain offered $1.4 million. Germany initially offered $50 million, then pulled out. Now President Correa is warning, warning they can't wait forever in a country where 13% are close to starving. If they don't have $100 million in the pot by the end of this year, he says they've got no choice but to pursue Plan B, the digging and destruction of the rainforest. If one rainforest seems a small matter to you, remember that the head of one deposed French king, the punishment of one broken country, and the deposing of one Iranian prime minister seemed pretty minor once. But they rippled out, and they shaped history for centuries. This too could be a moment where, when it's viewed with the perspective of decades or centuries, human history branches into two directions. On the path to the right, we turn down the chance to restrain ourselves, and we decide with a shrug to burn all the oil left in the world's soils and hack down all the remaining rainforests. Professor James Hansen, the NASA climatologist who has consistently been proved right about global warming, has explained where this ends. Quote, Clearly, if we burn all fossil fuels, we'll destroy the planet we know. We would set the planet on a course to the ice-free state, with a sea level 75 metres higher than it is now. Coastal disasters would occur continually. The only uncertainty is the time it would take for complete ice sheet disintegration. End quote. But there's another path where we choose to protect humanity's habitat and are prepared to pay for it. If our governments won't accept this offer at this late stage in these ecological crises, what are they saying about themselves and what are they saying about us? Hi, Jay. My name is TC, and I'm calling from State College, PA. 
Uh, I wanted to provide you with my take on the media episode you ran a few weeks ago and your request this week for commentary about Rachel Maddow and Lee, Lee Camp's different approaches to media critique. My take is that the bulk of the clips you draw on for your show tend to be critiques of conservative bias or ideology in the media. Rachel Maddow's clip about Rush Limbaugh, for instance, is concerned with how Rush constructs himself for his audience as the only place that they can turn to for the truth. Likewise, Counterspin's clip about Roger Ailes and Media Matters' clip about Bill O'Reilly both paint the problem as influential conservatives and the messages they spread. Lee Camp, however, offers a critique that differs in important ways from efforts to point out how specific conservatives or conservative outlets disseminate their ideology. Uh, As I understand Camp's argument, he's pointing out that commercial media system is inherently conservative and that such content is the logical byproduct of corporate media's efforts to maximize profits while minimizing costs and risk. In their efforts to aggregate the large audiences that corporate advertisers are willing to pay big bucks to reach, Camp points out that commercial media outlets pander to the lowest common denominator. The important distinction to make between Maddow and Camp's points is that if you take out out Rush Limbaugh or Glenn Beck or Sarah Palin, Roger Ailes, Disney, Comcast, or Fox News from the mix, the conservative bias of the media's profit motive will still be in place. Don't get me wrong, we, we desperately need both kinds of critiques. However, I encourage you, Jay, to share clips that provide critical analysis of the media's profit motive, even if it's not as sexy as Limbaugh, Beck, and Ailes bashing. Uh, indeed, the value of Camp's critique is that the media's conservative bias is built into the media system far more than any of these individuals or outlets could ever help hope to foster. Uh, we often hear on programs like TYT that we can't hope to address issues of climate change, workers' rights, and the national security apparatus until we address larger structural issues like how we finance elections. Likewise, we can't hope to truly address the debasing impact of conservative ideology in the media without doing everything we can to change the structure of the media system itself by fostering non-commercial, publicly, or member-supported media like your own show. Uh, Again, thanks for all you do, and uh, look forward to the next show. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is uh, Patrick calling from near Dallas. Uh, and you had asked for some comments on uh, Lee Camp and uh, Rachel Maddow's commentary on Rush Limbaugh about mainstream media basically editing or Fox basically editing. And I had sort of initially just rejected this out of hand because it's fairly obvious from a lot of the reports that have come out about how Fox basically has meetings to decide what the news is going to be. But I had read a blog uh, entry recently on a uh, website called uh, Partial Objects, where they had talked about, basically, uh, their basic premise was that, of course, Fox edits what shows up on the air because they're arguing for a particular viewpoint. And if you think your media outlet doesn't do the same, then you were deceiving yourself. And I kind of chuckled at that, yeah, okay, everybody sort of puts their own viewpoint out, but the more I've started to think about it, the more it becomes evident to me that uh, this is fairly widespread, so it's kind of hard to know exactly what the news really is. Anyway, two cents from Dallas. Bye. Hey, it's Cliff, calling from the University of Maine, and I wanted to comment on the two clips you played right next to each other on your last show about the police state in the U.S. You played a clip from Rush Limbaugh talking about how, you know, the mainstream media is run by a bunch of pinko leftists, etc. And then you played a clip from Lee Camp 
Facebook says the mainstream media is run by a bunch of, you know, right-wing fascists. And I thought it was interesting that both points of view, or both comments were equally absurd. Of course, the mainstream media is a joke, but it's not run by anybody or any, any particular um, um, ideological standpoint. The pro and, and the suggestions were equally ridiculous. It doesn't matter where we get our news. The, the, the problem here is that we have, foundationally, we have no concept of what's really going on. We won't get the full story from the New York Times, the same way we won't get the real story from, you know, uh, the, the Washington Post. Because the whole climate is, the whole intellectual climate is based on us not really seeing the whole picture. So, both left and right in this case are equally, are equally absurd. Well, thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I, I did think that it was exciting to get a couple of uh, very you know interesting, well-thought-out comments on the topic of you know the media, as you just heard in those voicemails. But then even more interestingly, I thought... Uh, it was fascinating to hear the, the last message that you guys just heard from Cliff from the University of Maine who made comments that made me wonder what he had heard because I don't think that it was what I played. I'm sure Cliff is an absolutely lovely guy, super well-meaning, but he basically put words he, – he, he put absurd words into the mouths of both people. Uh, he was referring to Limbaugh and Lee Camp and then said that they were both being absurd, <laughs> which would have been true if either of those people had said any of the things he claimed they said. So I, I don't know. the. Um, I mean, Limbaugh, I am not going to waste breath defending, but to imply that Lee Camp uh, said that the media was run by a bunch of fascists is, uh, well, it's enough to make me chuckle, frankly. <laughs> so that was interesting, definitely interesting. Uh, for the record, Lee's argument was that the media turns out acting conservatively because they have a, uh, a bias in favor of financial gain. You know, they, they do and say things that are good for their bottom line, and those things generally turn out to be in favor of the status quo, or generally conservative. So uh, I just want to set that record straight, at least. And now, because it's campaign season, I want to jump on the bandwagon and announce that I have a pre-announcement that I'm going to be announcing soon. And what you should do about that is check out the website. Like, if you want to get a sneak peek at what I'm announcing, go to the website and just see what you see. I'm not going to tell you what you're going to see. You just check it out. And if you see something, well, then you see it. If you go to the website and you don't know what I'm talking about, well, then you'll have to wait for the announcement. It's not going to be a big flashing banner, but uh, if you go and you see it and you piece together what it means, you might end up being half as excited as I am because I'm super excited, like over the moon excited. Like I've never been as excited about something that's changing about this show. And when I say changing, I just mean like this little tiny, tiny, tiny little tweak that's happening that's going to have profound implications. So I'm really excited about it. And if you go to the website, bestoftheleft.com, and you see something that 
you know, if you'd been there before and maybe you hadn't seen it before, then you might think, hmm, I think I know where Jay's going with this, and this could have profound implications. No wonder he's excited. So that's all I'll say about that. And I just want to thank a couple of members before I go, as I always do, of course. Uh, I want to thank Byron S., who signed up for a leftist yearly membership back on October 21st, and Courtney F., who signed up for a socialist monthly membership back on January 29th of this year. So huge thanks to Byron and Courtney and all of the members and donors who keep the show going. I could not do it without you guys. I want to thank the volunteers uh, who do an amazing job helping to keep this show going. And frankly, like more and more every day, I am uh, being able to do things that I could not do before the volunteers were around to help. And there's some really, well, for instance, this uh, announcement that I'm pre-announcing, that was something that, you know, it, it didn't didn't really get done, didn't get addressed uh, before volunteers were involved. And there are other really exciting things happening behind the scenes, none of which I'm going to talk about. But rest assured, things are happening, exciting things, all because people help support the show and give me the time to do these other exciting things, and so on and so on. So that's going to do it for today. Please continue to help spread the word about the show. It is incredibly important to help grow the audience that way, and it really does work. In fact, if you go to the website, like there might even be a really easy way to help spread the word. I, I mean, maybe. I'm not saying, I haven't announced anything though. Uh, you can sign up with us on Facebook and Twitter though, help spread the word online. That is incredibly effective. You can donate your Twitter account as well, donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. Also incredibly effective and incredibly easy for you to do. To get details about the show, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of those details are always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought and Shining sheep, the only maker that you wanna.